Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of The Pleasures of Photography, the podcast for photographers by photographers. Thank you for joining me on this journey through the history, concepts, and discussions on the medium of photography. In this first episode, we'll be discussing something that's caught quite a bit of misunderstanding and discussion on a recent post of mine on TikTok. The video in discussion is one that showcases the work of Kevin Carter in his most well-known photograph of a starving child being stalked by a vulture. The comment section of that video has turned into quite the war zone, quite similarly to the feedback that was received when the photo was first published in 1993. In this first episode of the podcast, we'll be diving into the history and work of Kevin Carter, who I believe, after seeing hundreds of disgusting and uninformed comments associated with the video I posted, deserves to have his story straightened away. Contrary to a lot of commenters' belief, Kevin Carter was not born in the United States. He was actually born and raised in Johannesburg, which is in South Africa. According to reports on his early life, he grew up in a middle-class family in an all-white area and often saw black people being arrested by police since they were living there illegally, which doesn't make any sense. From a young age, Kevin had a real problem with this type of discrimination. After high school, he became a pharmacist and joined the Air Force. After four years in the military, he defended a mess hall waiter from being bullied and abused, and as a result, was beaten and jumped by his fellow servicemen. So, he left without a trace and soon became a radio jockey named David. In 1983, Kevin had become witness to the Church Street bombing in Pretoria, killing 19 people and wounding 217. That was the turning point of affirmative action towards him becoming a news and documentary photographer. Initially, though, he worked as a sports photographer until he started working for the Johannesburg Star. During this time, he worked to expose the rough treatment given to apartheid, a policy of systems of segregation or discrimination on grounds of race that was going on in Southern Africa during the 90s. Society at this time was racially charged with discrimination and Carter aimed his camera at those underlying issues, including all the misery and bloodshed that came with it. When rioters began to erupt in the neighboring cities and towns, Carter started to align himself with a group of young white photojournalists who were all looking to expose the truth and horror of apartheid. That group would eventually be named the Bang Bang Club. American photojournalist and Nobel Peace Prize winner James Natchways, who would frequently work with Kevin Carter and his group of friends, has been quoted saying, they put themselves in face of danger, were arrested numerous times, but never quit. They literally were willing to sacrifice themselves for what they believed in. It was because of this undying sacrifice that allowed them to gain the respect of many other African photojournalists and civilians. One thing to note about Kevin Carter is that he never shied away from the ugly truths. He understood where he was standing and the involvement of the things that are happening around him could very well put him in danger as well. He also knew what he was doing was important. What was happening around him wasn't morally right, and people were dying. Innocent people. Carter was the first photographer to shoot a public execution. The victim, and I'm sorry if I mispronounce, Mackie Skosene. 
who was accused of being in a relationship with a police officer. That would be the first of many executions he would not only shoot, but witness on a daily basis. Shootouts, stabbings, lynchings, decapitations, and many other forms of public executions were seen every day by Carter and his fellow photographers, Ken Ostenbrook, Greg Marianovich, and Zhao Silva. The four of them were responsible for most of the coverage and media of the terrors that were happening in South Africa during the 1980s and 90s. One of the members of the Bang Bang Club, Zhao Silva, claimed that at a funeral, some mourners caught one guy, hacked him, shot him, ran over him with a car, and set him on fire. He then went on to describe a typical encounter. My first photo showed this guy on the ground as a crowd told him they were going to kill him. We were lucky to get away. When you're constantly finding yourself around situations like these, you start to become desensitized to what's going on around you. It's been said that Carter has been reported that he's felt trepidation at times, but knew it was his job and he had to do it with an objective eye. He had an obligation to spread the truth and spread awareness to the acts of hate that he's witnessed. Little did the world know that that trepidation took a much greater toll on him than the public thought. Obviously, this type of work was very hard on one's mental health. Constant exposure to chaos and violence will undoubtedly cause trouble in one's head. For the group, as time went on, it often took much more than drive to get them to work. Marijuana was widely available in South Africa and became one of the main drugs used by photojournalists on a daily basis. Eventually, though, marijuana wasn't keeping the visions and memories at bay, and the group turned to something a little bit more hardcore. Although Carter denied ever using the drug, his groupmates later expressed his regular dosage of a mix of marijuana and mandrax, which was a banned tranquilizer type drug that contained methoqualone. The drug was named White Pipe and was known for its instant and powerful kick, basically the ultimate downer that kept its user in a soothed and melodious state. All the members of the Bang Bang Club were notoriously brave and were known for being competitive with one another. In 1991, Greg Marinovich won a Pulitzer Prize for a photograph showing a Zulu member being stabbed to death by an ANC supporter. It wasn't known then, but that Pulitzer Prize shuttered a fire inside the other members to step their game up. Carter was especially known for comparing his work with the work of others. And although his work was monumental and necessary, he often compared himself and his work to those other members of the Bang Bang Club, especially his best friend Ken Oosterbroek, who was deemed the strongest photographer of the group. In another interview with James Natchways, he stated that Ken and Kevin were like the polarities of personality types. Ken was the successful photographer with the loving wife. His life was in order. Carter, however, had already found himself incapable of staying in a relationship and bounced from person to person. That difference in personality type would become even more apparent in the following two years. In 1993, Carter's life took a drastic change. That year, Carter would take one of the most iconic and heart-wrenching photographs in the history of mankind. At the time, the Hunger Triangle Relief Organization spread throughout Sudan and Congor, Aod, and Wat. They were all dependent on UNESCO, also known as the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. Their goal was to provide medical relief and structure to fight famine and disease spread throughout Sudan. 
During this time period, 40% of the area's children under five years old were malnourished and an estimated 10 to 13 adults died of starvation daily in Aeot alone. In order to create funding and provide support, Operation Lifeline Sudan invited photojournalists to report on the conditions. However, gaining access into the country was no easy feat. Journalists were only given 24-hour visas and were accompanied by government supervision at all times. In addition to being watched at all times by government forces, the journalists also were hit with severe restrictions on travel and actions held within the country. It was also expensive to get to Sudan. A common misconception about documentary photographers is that they're paid extremely well for the work that they do, when in reality, many of them were freelance photographers, barely making a living wage, and most signed photographers signed their rights away to the photographs, to either publishers or newspapers, which in turn buy out their images. Carter needed funding himself, so he secured some money from the Associated Press and asked fellow war photographer Greg Marinovich for money as well. It was well known at the time that Operation Lifeline Sudan did not have the funding to pay Carter and Silva a big check, yet they knew it was important that they go. Marinovich was then quoted stating, The UN hoped to publish the famine. Without publicity to show the need, it was difficult for aid organizations to sustain funding. About the political differences in fighting, Zhao and Kevin knew none of this. They just wanted to get in and shoot pictures. A common comment in the video I posted called photographers like Carter money-hungry pigs who care for nothing but the money. This is clear and evident proof that Carter and many other documentary photographers are hardly ever in it for the money. They're in this business because change needs to come and these things need to be seen in order for that change to occur. Saying these baseless claims that documentary photographers are in it for the money is not only disrespectful towards the photographers but disrespectful to the people that are actually living these types of tragedies. Without these photographs, people that are able to help would have never known the severity of what's happening around the world, and these people would continue to die and starve. But more of that in part two of this series. In the book The Bang Bang Club, chapter 10, titled Flies and the Hungry People, Marinovich and Silva describe the scenes of what it was like landing in Ayod. According to Silva, the child in the image that Carter took was already in care before Carter took the image. Silva goes on to talk about how a wave of villagers, all starving, swiftly walked to the place that they had flown in in hopes of getting a hold of some food. He stated that mothers who had joined the throng, waiting for food, left their children on the sandy ground nearby. Silva and Carter then split up to cover ground and document both the living and the dead. Many of times, Silva remembered Carter coming to find him and telling him about the indescribable scene that he had come across. It had become obvious that photographing and witnessing these people in such famished ways was becoming emotionally taxing on Carter. In their time in Aod, Silva had made contact with some rebel soldiers in hopes they would allow him and Carter to stay for the week instead of the 24 hours. One of the soldiers had apparently taken a liking to Carter's wristwatch during the brief interaction, and so Carter gave it to him as a gift. But with only an hour left in their trip, before they were forced to leave, things were looking like it was coming to a close. Anxiously, Silva made a last-ditch effort to get into contact with a rebel commander that could grant them access to stay for an extended period. 
Silva and Carter split once more, Carter going off to shoot more pictures, and Silva in search of the clinic complex. After a look around, Silva had returned back to the clinic and asked for the commander. He was told that the commander was in Congor, which just so happened to be where they were heading next. As Silva and Carter rejoined, Carter burst out to Silva saying, You won't believe what I just shot. I was shooting this kid on her knees and then changed my angle and suddenly there was this vulture right behind her and I just kept shooting, shot lots of film. He told Silva he had chased the vulture away and that he was shocked by the situation he had just witnessed. He said all he could think about was his young daughter, Megan. In 2011, the child's father revealed that the child was actually a boy who many had thought was a girl and his name was Kong Yong. Again, I'm very sorry if I mispronounced any of these names. He confirmed that before and after the photo was taken, Kong had been taken care of by the UN Food Aid Station, but unfortunately, he had died around 2007 due to fevers. Carter had relived the events he had been through in the interviews, telling reporters and the press that after meeting and photographing so many people that were on the brink of death, he eventually started to feel overwhelmed and looked for a place to take a breather from the heavy scenes of starving people he felt he couldn't do a good enough job to help. As he searched for a place to catch a break, he recalled hearing a high-pitched cry and whimper. He looked down, and a few yards out, saw what he believed was a young girl crawling towards the feeding center he was stationed at. As he crouched to take the photograph, a vulture landed some yards away and hoped to land its next meal. The photograph itself is a very gut-wrenching one. In the image, you see a very young Kong, malnourished and weak, his bones prominently shown through his tight skin as he continued to crawl forward on his hands and knees towards the feeding station for about another 20 minutes or so. Carter, in the meantime, watched with anxiety, hoping to snap an image with the vulture's wings spread out, but the time never came. Carter, though, had already snapped a few images. He then chased off the bird, but due to his contract and the high possibility of catching or spreading highly transmittable disease, left the child to other members of the food depository's care. After he took the images, he finally found a place where he could be alone, where he then sat underneath a tree, lit a cigarette, and cried, praying to God between sobs. He returned to Johannesburg. As he returned, the New York Times was looking for pictures of Sudan. So, they bought his photograph of Kong, and published it on March 26, 1993. The photograph immediately became the iconic frame of famine in Africa and was known worldwide. Carter then quit the Weekly Mail who he had been working for to become a freelance photographer. This was a risky move. No job security, no health insurance, no death benefits either. He later signed with Reuter News Agency and was guaranteed roughly $2,000 a month. That's a totally livable wage, isn't it? I mean, it's really just so much money that he's profited off of these photos. $2,000 a month. Anyways, I digress. He would then be sent to cover his country's first multiracial election that April. Those next few weeks of work, however, would seem to bring Carter nothing but sadness, depression, and self-doubt. During his time covering the election, Carter began to regress back into his old drug addiction ways, which caused his work and romantic life to become shaky. Then. A sudden burst of triumph entered Carter's life. The New York Times had called him up and told him that he had won the Pulitzer Prize. The person who told Carter was picture editor Nancy Bariski. She had been quoted saying that 
Carter was telling her that he had been tight on money and that his car was broken down and that the $15,000 the Pulitzer Prize was going to award him was going to allow him to fix it. She then went on and said that he continued to tell her about his personal problems in his life, like his romance and other mishaps. Kevin, she interrupted, you just won a Pulitzer. These things aren't going to be important now. I think this just goes to show what kind of mind state Carter was in, and that in what should have been one of the happiest moments of his life, winning the Pulitzer Prize, something so incredibly life-changing, he was more focused on his car. Obviously, as time grew closer to receiving the prize, his spirits raised and he started to grow with excitement. However, with the fame that came with the Pulitzer also brought about great lashes from the public eye. Many people became critical of Carter and his ethics. Due to jealousy, many other photojournalists in Africa made statements that the photo was a fluke and that he somehow staged the event. Regular everyday citizens in countries like the US criticized Carter for his quote, lack of ethics and morals, saying things like, the man adjusting his lens to take just the right frame of her suffering, quoted from the St. Petersburg Times in Florida, might as well be a predator, another vulture on the scene, they continued. As time passed, even some of Carter's friends voiced their opinion on the matter and wondered why he hadn't helped the girl. The criticism played heavy on Carter, and he often thought back on that little boy in the shot. But Carter was extremely aware of the constant dilemma that photojournalists face. In an interview, he told many stories about the horrific scenes that he had witnessed, and that many of the times there was just simply nothing he could do about the actions of other people around him and the horrific acts they committed. Many times, he wanted to but came to the realization that if he got involved, he would surely be killed. Although it may be immoral for somebody from the outside world looking in, in order to report on the atrocities of the world and share them with the people that need to see it, it's important to stay alive. If you can't do it, get out of the game, says Natchway. Every photographer who has been involved in these stories has been affected. You become changed forever. Nobody does this kind of work to make themselves feel good. It is very hard to continue. It was very hard to continue for Carter. With his recent Pulitzer Prize under his belt, he was looking for more work. So he and the rest of the Bang Bang Club headed out to Tacosa Township, just 10 miles down the road from Johannesburg, where Carter grew up. Tensions had risen in the township, and violence had broken out into full-on battles. Ken, Carter, and Greg all headed into town in hopes of covering what had become a miniature war in this town. However, at the time, Carter believed it was too sunny to capture any good photographs and decided to head back into town and wait a while so that he could conduct an interview on his most recent Pulitzer Prize win. Then, on that Monday, April 18th, just nine days before the 1994 elections in South Africa, a voice called over the radio. Panicked and loud, the voice yelled out that Ken had been killed and Marinovich had been gravely wounded. Oosterbroek had been shot and killed. After his death, a 15-month investigation began to see who could be held responsible. Unfortunately, despite overwhelming evidence and ballistics proving that only the peacekeepers were close enough to have shot and killed him, the magistrate ruled that no one could be found responsible for Osnabrück's death. However, in January 1999, photographer Greg Marinovich, a close friend of Osnabrück's, had a chance meeting with one of the peacekeepers who had been fighting in Tacosa the day of Osnabrück's death. 
Although the soldier initially claimed that it must have been Inkatha supporters shooting from the hostel that were responsible, on February 14, 1999, he said that out of fear and panic, the peacekeepers had unthinkingly opened fire. He stated, I think somewhere, somehow, I think somewhere, one of us, the bullet that killed your brother, it came from us. Carter was absolutely devastated by Ken's death, and he spiraled once again into a severe depressive episode. He was quoted later saying that he should have taken the bullet, not Ken. After that incident, things did not continue to get any better. He listed some stories that he wanted to be a part of, but nothing was really passing. Then, after he thought he caught a break, he ended up sending in some photographs too late for anyone to use, and on top of that, the editors and staff said that the photos weren't of any use to them. The quality was too poor. It was at this time that Carter's friends recall him talking about suicide openly to them, but they just thought he was joking around. He seemed to be stressed about past assignments that had came back as not good enough. His friends also said that he was very tight on money, and he often worried about how to make ends meet. Just as things were declining, Time reached out to him to cover a story in Mozambique, and he gladly accepted. After his time capturing the assignments in the field, he flew back home and stopped by a friend's house. It was at that moment that Carter realized he had made one of the biggest mistakes of his career. A wave of anxiety rushed over Carter as he realized that he had left a bag of undeveloped film on the seat next to his on the plane. He rushed to the airport at breakneck speed in hopes that the rolls of film would still be on the seat right where he left it. Unfortunately though, there were no signs of undeveloped film anywhere on the plane or in the lost and found. It had disappeared and with the loss of the film, Carter lost the last of his hope. On the morning of Wednesday, July 27th, Carter remained in bed until nearly noon and then dropped off a photograph that had been requested by the Weekly Mail. It was there that he had apparently unloaded all of his feelings onto his co-workers, one of which gave him the number to a therapist and urged him to call. Carter never would make that call and try and get the help that he needed. Instead, the last person to see Carter alive would be Ken Oosterbroek's now-widowed wife, Monica. Kevin departed from Monica's at around 5.30 and drove himself to a park that was 10 minutes away from his childhood home. Carter parked his red Nissan pickup truck under some trees at the field at the study center in the park. Then, around 9 p.m., Carter attached a garden hose to the exhaust pipe and turned on the engine. He left a note behind that described the horror and monstrosities of war and the life that he had witnessed. The note read, I'm really, really sorry. The pain of life overrides the joy to the point that joy does not exist. Depressed, without phone, money for rent, money for child support, money for debts, money. I am haunted by the vivid memories of killings and corpses and anger and pain, of starving or wounded children, of trigger-happy madmen, often police, or killer executioners. I've gone to join Ken if I'm that lucky. Shortly after... Kevin Carter was dead. The life and stories of Kevin Carter are without a doubt important to know, understand, and discuss when talking about documentary photographers. What documentary photographers witness sticks with them for life. It affects their mental, physical, and emotional health. Although the line of work is one that can be seen as immoral to some, the job itself is without a doubt necessary. Whether we want to admit it or not, the work that these photographers do is necessary for change to happen. In the case of Kevin Carter, the general public missed the protagonist of the photograph. 
This happens many a times throughout history, and seems to be a reoccurring theme in documentary photographers' critique. The protagonist is not the photograph itself, and it's especially not the photographer. It is, however, the people within the frame. The photos aren't just photos. They're real people struggling, starving, dying that need help. And Kevin Carter did a brilliant job of capturing just what was happening in the world at the time. No matter how graphic or awful it may have looked, it was real. These things actually occurred, and without the help of Kevin Carter and the rest of the Bang Bang Club, the world would have never known the severity of the situation in Sudan and Southern Africa. Without Kevin Carter and the Bang Bang Club, the starving, malnourished, and deathly skeletons of the living would have never received the type of funding that they received. This is going to be it for episode one of the series, as well as the first episode of the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me on The Pleasure of Photography, the podcast for photographers by photographers. If you'd like to do some of your own independent research, in the description of this episode, I have linked all the sources that I use to talk about and discuss the life of Kevin Carter, including publications from Time Magazine, interviews, documentaries, and a movie based off the life of Kevin Carter and the Bang Bang Club, as well as the book written by Greg Marinovich titled The Bang Bang Club. Join me for episode two of this series next week, where we continue the discussion of documentary photographers in a new episode titled the importance of documentation, where we'll be discussing just how important it is for documentary photographers and photojournalists to exist and what they contribute to the world. It's been a great first episode. I've been your host, Jared Thomas Tapey, and thank you for tuning in to The Pleasure of Photography. You can follow me on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube at Jared Tapey, as well as catch up on the latest news and topics we'll be discussing on this podcast at The Pleasures of Photography podcast on Instagram. Always remember to tell a story without saying a word. Now get out there and make something worth making.